Amen. The scripture reading for our sermon passage this morning comes from Luke 1, 1 to 4, 26 to 35, and 46 to 55. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great, shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> amen, amen. <laughs> um, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all again. Uh, you know, last Sunday. Um, hello, children. Uh, thank you for being good. <laughs> and uh, uh, feel, feel free to walk around, stretch your legs. But um, uh, yeah, last Sunday, you know, with the sort of uh, unpredictable forecast, we, we kind of went virtual again. But it's good to be out again. And, uh, you know, we do look forward and, and we are doing some, uh, you know, uh, work to move uh, inwards, inside, uh, as we, uh, as, 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 as more people get vaccines and there'll be like a patio out there. And so something to look forward to, you know, uh, we won't be out here forever, um, not 40 years at least. Uh, but um, if you're new, welcome to our church. Welcome to Risen. And I'm so glad that you're joining us. I'm Pastor Rich. And today we're starting a new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And um, the word gospel is just an old English word that means good news. And the Gospel of Luke is one of four Gospels with Matthew, Mark, and John that together comprise the first four books of the New Testament. And these four short Gospel books, uh, they're ancient biographies of Jesus that recount his life and his death and resurrection. You know, to have a single biography 
of an ancient historical figure is considered to be a treasure for historians, uh, but to have four of them is unprecedented. In other words, we know more about Jesus than we do about anyone from antiquity. And each gospel provides a unique angle, uh, a unique uh, perspective of Jesus, which together with all four of them give us what we need to know in order to make important life decisions about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And in, in Luke's gospel, there is this theme that all Bible scholars recognize if you read all the books on Luke and all the commentaries on Luke, and that theme is this. The gospel of Jesus is not just for the Christian community. It is also very much for those outside the Christian community. That is the overarching, emphasized theme in the gospel of Luke, that the gospel of Jesus is not just for the Christian community. It is very much also for those outside of the Christian community. You see, Luke considers this theme to be extremely important because any group of people of um, like-minded beliefs can have an insular effect on each other. And it can cause the group to be inwardly focused. And this is not just the case for uh, the social media um, algorithm for your account. Christians are no exception. So Luke's gospel shows and challenges Christians with the transformative work of the gospel in the lives of those considered to be outsiders of the religious and spiritual community of Christ. The story of the prodigal son. The story of the good Samaritan. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple. And Jesus' emphasized relationship to women in such a patriarchal society, these heralded stories of outsiders in the ancient world, they're all from the Gospel of Luke. You know, I think that so many times Christians um, can forget that we were outsiders before Christ brought us in. And in our heart and in our life, we can still behave like outsiders still. So Luke's portrait of the turning to God uh, by outsiders causes insiders to re-examine their original status, to reevaluate our heart, and renew God's calling and purpose upon our life and, and the spiritual character of the church. Jacques Ellul, uh, a French uh, philosopher in his book, The Presence of the Kingdom, puts his finger on what many feel is the long-term weakness of the church. He writes this. Despite all our theological expertise and liturgical correctness, we have failed to live as Christians in any distinctive or alternative way to the unfulfilling ways of life in wider culture. The gospel means good news, not good ideas, it announces not an abstract, disembodied spirituality, but a change in the actual state of affairs. Jesus the King is real, and he is not half serious, nor has he misspoken. 
Therefore, the rediscovery of a genuine Christian way of life, a life that portrays Christ's selflessness, his heart for the lost, his compassion for the less fortunate, and the glorious reality of eternity above anything here on earth, rather than just getting our doctrine right, is the key to the spiritual vitality of Christianity. End quote. So Risen, being in the Bay Area, where much of the population are outsiders to the Christian faith, friends, there is no more relevant example to help us live out our faith faithfully than the Gospel of Luke. And so today we just got three points. First, we're going to take a look at a credible witness. Second, a relational witness. And then lastly, a transformed witness. Those are our three points. So first, a credible witness. Now this first point is going to be the shortest of the three. Um, in verse 1, uh, as Harry read, right, Luke uh, says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught now what is luke saying in this very long run-on sentence <laughs> right uh, translating the greek into english is a difficult task as as this run-on sentence shows well, simply put, Luke is saying that he was an eyewitness of Christ. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 and healed the sick. Luke was there when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, when he died on the cross, when he was buried, and then when he rose from the dead and fellowshiped with them. Luke is saying that the person and the life and the resurrection of Christ is a historical event. That's what he's saying. In other words, Luke is saying that the Christian faith is based on not fantasy, not emotional experiences, uh, not a cultural worldview, but on what has happened in history. And I spoke at length uh, on this during Easter, so I won't do that today. Uh, but the question isn't, is Jesus real or is the Bible trustworthy? It is. Many ancient historians cannot deny um, the trustworthiness of the Old and New Testaments. The struggle that many people have is not the historicity of the Scriptures, but the supernatural element of the Scriptures. And so the real question is, could you believe then that there is a God? Could you believe in the divine? In other words, could you believe that life is more than materialism or survival of the fittest and that there is a divine moral imprint on your soul and a divine moral purpose for humanity? Stephen Hawking, uh, the late Stephen Hawking, who did not self-identify as a Christian or as religious, wrote this in his book, A Brief History of Time. Until recently, the universe was thought to be essentially static and unchanging at time. 
Yet the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but has had a beginning. However, many people did not know what to do with this, because the implications of a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. There are clearly religious implications, because it seems to imply the existence of a supernatural being who created the universe. Actually, it would be very difficult to explain how or why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. So just very briefly, you know, we can't uh, do this exhaustively in one sermon, but I just wanted to dip our toes a little bit in the historical and philosophical and scientific case for Christianity. But let's move on to the second point, a relational witness. You know, Luke doesn't just say Jesus was a historical event, that he was there, that he witnessed Jesus do these things. He writes this gospel account for a specific person named Theophilus. Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, which is a title for a political official. So Theophilus is a Roman official um, that Luke is corresponding with. It's someone Luke is evangelizing to or discipling. And what this tells us is that when Christians think about our faith and our witness as individuals and as a church, you know, um, our main source of witness as a church is in our website. It's not our Instagram account or Facebook account. No, the vehicle that God uses to bring someone towards him to grow and mature that person is through relationship. I remember in high school, before I became a Christian, uh, my mom's friend had somehow convinced her to sign me up for a Christian conference, <laughs> right? Apparently, I had caused so much trouble that my mom was tired of me. She was going to outsource me for three days for God to do something in my heart. Um, I always thought this was sort of a strange thing, though, uh, you know, that somehow the Christian faith could be sort of uh, mass distributed like a movie or a concert. And when I think about the overall effect, overall effect of that conference on the people uh, that went, only a small number still believe in the truth of the God of the Bible and follow Jesus. Now, I committed my life several years after that to Christ as a senior in high school um, and by God's grace remained a Christian. But it wasn't because of that conference. It was it was because of the many, many spiritual relationships that I had accumulated and developed over the course of my life. Through college and beyond. Friends and mentors who helped me wrestle with my doubts, my darkest seasons, my sense of unworthiness to be a Christian, my fear of commitment to a local church, my baggage of the abuse in the church, my cynicism, and the countless other things that were interfering with my faith in my life. It was the Lukes in my life that I saw regularly, that I lived life with, caring friends and mentors who gave me books with little personal notes like Luke's to Theophilus, 
that won me over to the faith. And even now, they encourage me to grow in the faith. So friends, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I'm sure you can think of Luke's in your life that have had an influence in your heart that did not take no for an answer, that not only prayed and shared the gospel with you, but would laugh and live life with you. Even if you don't consider yourself a Christian and you are here today, it's because God has still used Luke's in your life. (laughs) That's why you're here. See, friends, this is what makes Christianity so powerful. This is what makes Christianity so enduring throughout the ages, throughout the most darkest times of the church, so attractive. Not only for its piercing insights of truth to some of humanity's biggest problems, but with that its radical and authentic display of grace and love, to others that correlates with our professed beliefs. Friends, God uses Luke's and they won't be falling from the sky. He's calling Luke's from among us. This brings us to the third point, a transformed witness. You know, in verse 26, our text says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Uh, now, this geographical information uh, that angel, this angel Gabriel went to Galilee, the county of Galilee and the city of Nazareth in that county, this information is not an incidental detail. Because in John chapter 1, one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, tells his friend Nathaniel that they found the Messiah, which is Hebrew, for the anointed one. And because kings were anointed with oil back then, it's another way of saying, we found the future king of Israel. But what does Nathaniel say? He says, Philip, what good could come out of Nazareth? (laughs) That's what he says. Nazareth. You see, today, Nazareth is a glorious town. Galilee is a famous county. But back then, Jerusalem was the center of the world. And the county of Galilee was the boondocks of Israel. So everyone from Jerusalem looked down on Galilee. No one wanted to live there. No one wanted to visit there. And surely nothing good could come out of Nazareth. It was a city that you wouldn't even be able to find on a map. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we learn that while Mary and Joseph were traveling to Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor, so they stop at an inn, but they didn't have enough money to rent a room, so they stayed in the barn. Mary goes into labor. She gives birth to her son, Jesus, and lays him in a manger, which is a word for a feeding trough. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that Joseph worked with his hands. He was a carpenter, an individual contractor. 
And his son Jesus was the same until he went into the ministry. All this to say that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were from extremely humble means. You know, friends, we live in a world where lavishness and material wealth is pretty much worshipped, don't we? It doesn't matter how their life looks or how their family is doing. If they possess great material wealth, we look up to them. And we are told that if we attain this or if we attain that, that we would be happy. Uh, that our restless and discontent souls would be satisfied. And yet, it doesn't seem to do the trick. But unsurprisingly, everything about Jesus, everything about God, everything about the Old and New Testaments contradict and oppose this kind of impulse. This Bible's teaching that, that God operates the exact opposite. Habitually, he operates in the exact opposite opposite way. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, God brings his message of salvation and redemption and hope in a very dark, destructive, and oppressive society, not through the dominance and the power of the Egyptians or the glory of the Persians or the Roman Empire, but through a small nation, a very little race that is seldom in power. And in the New Testament, as we've seen today, the story of the gospel begins again, not inside the typical powers that be, but outside of Jerusalem. Outside the city capital of power and connection. Outside their leaders and the conventional norms of upward movement. Friends, the greatest person in the history of the world was born in a barn to a carpenter, he worked with his hands, and he came from a town nobody heard of. Friends, every Sunday we gather to be reminded that Jesus did not come in power. He did not come in glory, but he came in weakness. He came in humility. He didn't have the academic credentials of the rabbis in his day. He had no money. He had zero social status. And what this means for us, what this means for the church, is that Jesus Christ, friends, turns the world's idea of success upside down. You see, every message that we listen to now bombards us with this message that a joyful life is attained by living for ourselves through the accumulating and striving for our own gain. But the message of Christ that we hear every Sunday, that we cannot avoid on every page of Scripture, is the very opposite. Jesus says that a successful life a joyous life, a meaningful and flourishing life 
is actually found in living a life of love. A life of kindness. A life of selflessness. A life of compassion. Friends, this is what will fill your life and your family and your heart and our church with the purpose and meaning and joy that we're longing for. In one of his books, uh, Clayton Christensen, he was the late business professor at Harvard Business School, wrote how he found it strange that his peers and his students, after graduating and working for some time, all very successful by conventional standards, they would ring him up with a spirit of discontentment, uh, disillusion, and cynicism, which he says is, is really strange because it was the exact opposite of a Harvard Business School student who once had dreams and ambitions for great happiness. So this set him on a journey on a project which eventually led to a best-selling book. And in this project, he conducted an extensive study interviewing subjects on their level of happiness while gathering information about their lives, their income level, their job title, their families, their friends, and their community. And what he found was that though the amount of income or job title gave the illusion of future happiness, after a basic income level, he found that it wasn't a contributing factor to a person's happiness. Actually, according to his research, the most important source of happiness came from those who had committed loving relationships within their community. And so when he asked those who weren't happy why they didn't invest in their relationships, they replied that they were too busy, uh, that they didn't have the time and they didn't believe it was worth the effort. But Christensen's research showed that the knee-jerk reaction to relationships, to give the least, actually resulted in weak relationships and the most unhappy people. While those who invested the most time were the most committed and sacrificed the most in their relationships, had strong, fulfilling relationships, and were the most happy. In his book, he uses uh, the example of the military as some of the most fulfilling relationships because of their selfless commitment and undying loyalty to each other. And friends, the gospel says that Jesus did this in a way that none of us could ever do. This is exactly what Jesus did when he left his throne in heaven to save us. He left his glory and his power and his life to bring us undeservingly into his love, into the presence of the only one, the only one who deserves worship in our hearts, the only one who can give us the joy and the life that we so desperately need. And friends, when we get this, 
when the Spirit is able to pull back the scales from our eyes and replace the idol in our heart, it's like a spiritual shockwave. Something that you are so unfamiliar with, but seems to resonate with your experience. It's a spiritual shockwave that makes Jesus so much greater than anything in this world that when he is present in that place, in the center of your being, everything pales, everything pales in comparison to his love and to his selflessness, to his grace and compassion for you. And when this is not the case, because we all struggle with keeping Jesus Jesus focused center, we'll then be looking for other things, contentment and purpose in all the wrong places. And we'll find ourselves with this kind of numbing discontentment. I was telling Jen about this, you know. Um, when, when Jesus isn't in the middle of my heart, I find myself with this sort of numbing discontentment. You know, um, it's sort of like I've accepted uh, that, that life is kind of just miserable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so I might as well just keep sucking it up, right? <laughs> and when people share their despair, I'm like, I, I feel it too, but I, I don't have the answer. Wait, no, I do. It's Jesus, right? <laughs> like that. I'm a pastor. Like, hold on, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, author Graham Tomlin calls this uh, the 21st century, the, the modern spiritual cynic, <laughs> right? Like, we know Jesus, but we're still cynical. But in those moments where God pulls the spiritual veil from our eyes, and, 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 and in even those, those short, short and brief moments where heaven punches through earth, and we see the greatness of Christ and the, the humility of Christ, and we, we, we get grounded in this. There's a difference, I think, in a Christian whose faith is, is kind of blowing in the, in the wind without strong roots, if you're a gardener, and a Christian whose faith is, is grounded and, and the roots go deep and the roots go wide and they're even clinging to the other plants in the soil. If this is the case, then more often than not, friends, you can be liberated from, from all this. You'll want to fight this more because you've tasted it a little bit more. You've experienced the hope of Christ more. And this is what happens to Mary. Let me just end with this. After the angel tells Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And uh, notice here, you know, Mary is, is not saying, you know, I think, you know, Gabriel, I think this could add value to my life. <laughs> you know, that's not what she's saying. She's not saying, you know, I think that, you know, knowing you, um, it could help me, you know. Yeah, I need a person like you in my life, <laughs> you know, to keep me, keep me positive, keep me grounded. Uh, she doesn't do that. She's not calculating this relationship with God. She's not weighing the costs and benefits of her response and then, you know, deciding to do something. No, she is not adding Jesus to her life. It's not Jesus and my plans. She's entirely caught up. She's sold. God is unchanging Mary in her very center 
you know, some of y'all are sold with cryptocurrency. You know what I'm saying? You're all in, right? That's Mary. She's like saying, I'm all in. I'm selling all this stuff and I'm putting it in you, Jesus, right? She's saying, God, I understand now that you involve my whole life. If I want to experience all the benefits and all the blessings that you're going to bring, I've got to sell everything else and I've got to put it in you. My soul, that's what she's saying, my spirit has been moved to the depths. I'm not just saved. She's saying, I am fundamentally changed. I'm no longer Mary. I'm Christ in Mary. I am no longer rich. I am Christ in rich. You are no longer David. You are Christ in David. You are no longer Jen. You are Christ in Jen. But what changed Mary? Well, in verse 49 to 50, Mary says, For he is mighty, and he has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And I want to focus just on these two verses, right? Um, Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. I want to focus on God's holiness and God's mercy. Now, the word holy means that God is opposed to, to sin. That's what it means if you're holy. If you're holy, you are opposed to sin. Not just in word, but in deed, right? You see, one of the problems is that you and I, friends, we get used to sin. We get used to selfishness. We get used to lying. We get used to gossip. We get used to, we, just get, we get used to sin. We accept it. But for God to be holy means that he will never get used to sin. God can never forget about the world's brokenness. That's what it means to be holy. He'll never turn a blind eye. He will not just walk past sin. He's the just judge of the universe, and God is going to do something about it. What it means that God is holy, it means that he has to do something about sin. But right after Mary says, God, you're holy, she says, you are also merciful. In other words, Mary understands that if there is a God, no one could stand before his holiness. Everyone's broken and everyone has sin in them because God knows everything. And mercy isn't just for people out there. Mary has seen the effects of her own sin in her own family, in her own marriage. Mary knows she needs mercy. This mercy is is not for people out there. It's for for her. But how does mercy come to a sinner? Well, if you're at fault in a car accident, right, with a stranger, they're going to come after you. They're going to want justice. If If you run off, they'll chase after you. They'll call the cops on you. They'll try to write your license plate. They'll put you in jail. But if you're at fault in a car accident with your mom, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get mercy. She's not going to have you thrown in jail. (laughs) 
She's not going to call your insurance and get your premium hiked up. She will pay for the damages. She will take the punishment for your crime. Justice is upheld, but it's because she has absorbed the cost. And so you get mercy. Legally, you get to act like nothing has ever happened, even though you are a terrible driver and you are a criminal. (laughs) Your slate is clean, as if you never sinned. You see, true mercy is not justice withheld, it's judgment withheld. And in our relationship with God, it's as if we incur an infinite amount of unjust car crashes against his character, against his heart, against his will. And as our Heavenly Father, he gives us mercy because Jesus has taken the judgment for our sins. Jesus covers the cost of all our sins, which is death, so that we can have eternal life. Jesus gets judgment and we get mercy. When God looks at you, it's as if your slate is clean. Friend, could you imagine that? When God looks at you, it doesn't matter what day, what hour, what week, what year, what season in life you are in, God sees your slate clean. That is the profound power of Christ's death on the cross for you. The God who can never forget, forgets. I know some of you have really good memory, and it's kind of a curse because you can never forget, (laughs) right? But God can never forget, and he forgets. And friends, like Mary, when we're filled with this, this humble amazement and this undeserving gratitude, we'll be filled with wonder and joy. It'll change us not into this person or that person, but into the greatest person the world has ever known. So as a church, you know, whenever we come together, whenever we hear the gospel, we can expect nothing less than God to overthrow the idols of our hearts again. Every day, every week, every moment. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we come before you out of a crazy world, a world that is bombarded with consumption, a world that is living in overabundance and overwaste, a world that does not treat one another as as people who have been made in the image of God, a world that cannot seem to find common ground in the midst of our differences. We come from a crazy and hectic world that markets to us inanimate objects over spiritual relationships, over spiritual precious souls. And even though we have been saved and we know you, Father, we are still 
uh, imperfect until we will reach heaven and we are not uh, immune to such temptations and immune to such messages to uh, beat upon us like a heavy storm. And sometimes our roots can break. But Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is faithful. We are a God, or you are a God who is powerful. And your resurrection does not only mean that Jesus rose from the dead and that we will rise from the dead, your resurrection means that the power of sin is broken and that we can rise from this power whenever you take place center in our hearts. Father, help us to remember the Luke's in our lives that we did not get here on our own. And help us to remember that you still use Luke's in our lives. And these Luke's are people who have been transformed. People who have not just been saved, but who have been utterly shaken to the core by the gospel. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for never leaving us. Thank you that your gospel, that your word goes forth and does not come back empty. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.